You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. to know more about, 
to understand others, and develop a compassion for what they confront and endure. Books have been at the forefront of my own decolonization process, and it started with The Reluctant Fundamentalist by Mohsen Hamid and Dog Eaters by Jessica Aguilar. Little by little, we change and grow as we read, and there are some significant books that change us substantially and put us on a new path. I'm privileged to say that Grace Talusan's book had a similar effect on me. Thank you so much. Um, so I think I'm going to go up to the podium and talk from here, if that's okay. So like on. Um, thank you, Eliza, for the generous introduction and for the series Decolonizing Your Bookshelf. I actually saw someone wearing a t-shirt. Where was it? I think I was like in San Francisco or something. I thought of you. Um, reading intentionally, paying attention to voices that have been overlooked, making sure to read in a way that challenges colonialism and other dominant power structures is an important and quiet and also very impactful way to change the world, and I really appreciate your project. Um, I also want to thank Tracy um, and the Enoch Pratt Library for hosting this event and making it possible for me to be here for Boston today. Libraries have everything in them to change our lives for the better. I also congratulate the library on the recent renovation. Public libraries changed my life and continue to be an important resource for me as a writer, and it's an honor for me to be in this beautiful space to speak about the body papers tonight. Um, thank you also to Greedy Reads, the writer in the hallway, who's selling the book. Um, it's important to support our local independent bookstores. They don't just sell books, but they also make a space in our community for us to share ideas and interests and come together over a love of books. It is October, Filipino American History Month, a celebration and a designation that Filipino Americans advocated and fought for in the 80s. We have been in this country for many centuries. The first Filipinos landed in Morro Bay in 1587 in what is now California. I grew up in Massachusetts, and my parents would always drive our visitors to see Plymouth Rock, where the pilgrims landed. And we would look at the rock with the date 1620 etched into it. And that was a full 33 years after Filipinos touched Morro Bay on the other coast. But I never knew this. Depending on the way people are counted, Filipinos are the largest group of Asian Americans. And yet, Filipino Americans continue to be somewhat invisible in culture and history, with some exceptions. Part of what I explore in my memoir has to do with history of colonialism, war, trauma, and illness, and how that history plays out on a person's life, my life. There was so much I could not speak of, and so I turned to writing to express my reality. I'm curious um, how many people here have been to a book event, a literary event or a book reading before. Can you like show of hands, is that okay? All right, so at least half, maybe more. What about an author event or a book reading by a Filipino-American or Filipinas author? How many? Okay, so a little bit less than, than that. Um, it's not in my nature to be extroverted in the center of attention, but since March when the book came out, I've been standing in the center of rooms like this and taking up space with my story. This is somewhat hard for me, but it's also very important. I understand what it means to be here in front of you tonight and how rare something like this is. I never set out to write a memoir. I wrote fiction in college and grad school and afterwards. 
I didn't think of creative nonfiction as an option for storytelling, and I never considered myself a subject worth writing about. As much as I read throughout my, ch my childhood, it wasn't until I was midway through high school and I came across Maxine Kingston's The Woman Warrior that I saw someone in, in literature that kind of looked like me and my family. Until then, my entire diet of literature consisted of stories by and about white characters, except for the occasional appearance of an incorrect idea of someone who looked like me. These caricatures of the Asian or the so-called Oriental embarrassed me deeply. I did not want to be read as a stereotype, and whenever we would appear in books or movies, on those rare occasions that we did, I would brace myself for the pain. But in Kingston's The Woman Warrior, there I was, finally in a book, not as a side character, a stereotype, or a joke, but as a consciousness allowing all of its nuance and complexity and its humanity. And I had never seen this before. I didn't know it was allowed. As rich as my reading diet was, my imagination had been curtailed, and I didn't even realize my profound absence and invisibility from literature until I saw myself appear. And this is why diverse books matter. Because of Kingston's work, I felt a space open up in my own imagination and my, my idea of what was possible in writing. From her example, I realized that immigrant fam families, Filipinx characters, people that I knew were worthy of attention could be in stories. From then on, I read intentionally and sought out books by writers of color, immigrants, women, and any other marginalized voices. It used to be that I would buy a new book by an Asian American author maybe once or twice a year, and I'm thrilled to say that there's so many being published in my experience recently that it's hard to keep up the habit. Even for Filipino American writers, this year alone there's been a bounty of, of published books by Filipino American writers. Several times in my writing life, I thought of stopping and giving up. It was just so hard, and the return on investment seemed pretty insignificant. But what kept me going was thinking of what other authors had done for me with their books. Despite implicit and explicit messages over the years that there was no interest or audience for my work, I stayed committed to being a published author because I already knew I was so close and I had to try and pay back what other writers had done for me by really trying to put out my book into the world. So I'm going to read a couple of short excerpts from my book so you get a feel for it, and then just for a few more minutes, and then I'll um, be in conversation. Because we are in a library tonight, I thought I would read an homage to my local public library. This is from a chapter in the book called Basalubong, which is Filipino, or Tagalog, for gift. As a child, if it weren't for my maternal grandmother's yearly visits from the Philippines, I would not have been certain that such a place existed beyond my family's stories. Mamaola was as real as the fairy godmother of Cinderella. She swooped in once a year, bringing dry watermelon seeds, milk candies, and stories of this fantasy land called Manila, only to vanish without a trace. When Mama Lola noticed that I always had a book in front of my face, she told me about her nephew, Alfredo Navarro Salanga, who was a prolific writer of journalism, poetry, fiction, criticism, even plays. 
like your teacher Freddie, she told me. I didn't believe Mama Lola. I did not conceive of anyone who looked like me as the author of a book. Mama Lola told me to write to Freddie a letter, and she promised to hand deliver it to him. So, in 1982, at 10 years old, I wrote my uncle a letter and forgot about it. The next year, my grandmother returned with a letter tucked into a soft cover book titled The Vow Harvest by Alfredo Navarro Salanga. I was amazed. Here was an actual book written by a real writer who was blood-related to me. Back then, I often spent weekends at a public library, but had never encountered a book by a Filipino. One of the early conditions one of the conditions of early childhood is that you must ask for nearly everything that you want. Some objects are out of reach, the ice pops in the freezer, for example, and permission is a constant requirement. Can I play outside? Can I watch TV? Can I have a glass of water? There was always the risk of no, and the disappointment, frustration, shame, and longing that accompanied rejection. The one place I didn't have to ask for permission was in the children's wing at the Ames Street Library. I earned the right to a library card in the first grade by proving I could form the letters to my first and last name on the application. The librarian led me to the picture book corner where the shelves were my height. There, on the red leather bench under the picture window, I found my answers to questions about life and eased my loneliness. The library was a gift from the Ames family who made their fortune manufacturing shovels, and I accepted this gift every week. As my mother waited parked out front, I climbed the long walkway to the library's entrance, a low barge trimmed in long meadow sandstone. The wooden door is hidden to the left of the entrance on the porch. Later, I learned about the Chinese men who dug the railroad using those Ames shovels. But as a child, all I cared about was getting my books. I pushed through the dark doors into the library. It was as quiet as a church and just as mysterious. The one toilet in the cellar required a skeleton key and a walk down a narrow spiral staircase where you were met with the ghostly marble bust of the library's benefactor, Oliver Ames II. Only library staff was allowed to fetch the books from the balcony under the barrel vaulted ceiling. My library card was a house key to my one true home. Well before I was actually an adult, I was allowed to cross the border into the adult section. When I searched the wooden card catalog, I would always go to the drawer with 959.9 of the Dewey Decimal System and read the name of the place I had come from, which no one around me had ever heard of. The summer before I entered college, I worked as a clerk in the library and sat at the glass top desk, dreaming of who I would become. All that time, I had never thought about all the people who had written the books on the library shelves. The adults I knew were doctors, nurses, teachers, and housewives. And yet, almost a quarter century later, I became a writer. I found stories in that library early in my life and have never stopped looking for more. So the next short excerpt I'll read is in honor of Filipino-American History Month. I rely on the library to write this piece, the Missouri State Archives in St. Louis. 
consistent joke I heard comedians make about Filipinos was that we ate dogs. No insult felt worse than being called a dog eater. Even though I'd never done so myself, I felt the shame of this practice tied to my body. Some animals were acceptable food sources, while others made me savage. Perhaps this way of character characterizing Filipinos began when we were displayed in living exhibits during the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. These human zoos were evidence in support of the U.S. colonization of the Philippines. The Philippine village was reconstructed over 47 acres of the fair and was a very popular site. I found the scrapbooks of visitors to the fair in the Missouri State Archives. Among the many images and newspaper clippings about Filipinos, I found a photo of my great-grandfather, Captain Pedro Navarro. One lasting legacy of the exposition, besides the invention of the ice cream cone, was the belief that your dogs were not safe with Filipinos around. My great-grandfather was one of those Filipinos at the fair, although he wasn't confined to the areas where the, quote, natives performed their foreign cultural practices. Instead, he marched in the Philippine constabulary band with his piccolo. He was the ideal outcome of U.S. colonization, Christianized, educated, military, the embodiment of colonial success. But all that mattered, at least in the American imagination, was what Filipinos did to dogs. When I visited St. Louis to learn more about the Filipinos at the World's Fair, a man at the museum gift shop whispered to me, they ate dogs. Over 100 years later, this is the story about us that persists. So now I'll read the last little bit, which is about my life in the Philippines before I left it when I was two years old. Before my family emigrated from Manila, I lived on a compound with blood relatives. It was our own tiny village enclosed by a wall, planted with broken glass and sharp metal pieces at the top. This kept the danger out, and it also made it difficult for the teenagers and husbands to sneak out at night. Someone always knew your business. You were never alone. Our family lived together, ate together, and prayed together. We were a large family, Catholics like the majority of the country. I was surrounded by dozens of cousins who called me by my nickname, Bubut or Little Bud, and liked to pick me up and pinch my cheeks since I was so roly-poly. I blamed my titas, those aunties who liked a fat child. They fed me constantly, especially camote, sweet potato slices fried in lard and dredged in sugar which melted like snow on hot coins, then hardened into a shell. They liked to watch my joy as I ate. At night, the small children glowed white with talcum powder after their baths, and the older cousins told stories until the baby's clean hair dried. Secret histories of the family were shared, the speculation about which cousins were not true blood, the story about the Muslim uncle from the South who moved to Manila as a boy when the priests offered to educate him. All he needed to do in exchange was convert to Catholicism. His family held funeral rites for him, and my uncle realized that there were ways to die 
before you died. Or the story of how my mother's mother, Mama Lola, was haunted by the faint sound of a crying baby, perhaps the unborn soul of her last miscarriage, and how she roamed the grounds some nights trying to find her child. After my mother's father, Lolo, died, the families on the compound feuded for months, confusing their grief with anger. They stopped talking to each other, and the once vibrant compound fell quiet. On New Year's morning, Lolo's favorite holiday, the family broke their silence, all the kinfolk complaining of poor sleep. Someone had been knocking on their windows after midnight. They concluded that it was Lolo who had rapped on the glass. He knew it would force everyone back together. I grew up with the dead as present as the living. It was as if our dead family were in just the next room or traveling abroad. Sometimes they'd send you a postcard from their travels, a short, <clears throat> a short and cryptic message to let you know they were thinking about you even though they were far away. Whenever we heard that a loved one had died, we asked for the time of death and recalled what we were doing when they passed. Our belief was that their soul roamed the earth for several days before moving on. Often, we, we would remember a strange phone call with no one on the other end, or a cryptic text, text message, or in my case, a single ladybug appearing on my beaker during chemistry lab in college, and then flying away, leaving me with an overwhelming feeling of peace. I learned later that just before chem lab, my grandmother, Inam, had died. It seemed like an idyllic place, living amongst loved ones in the compound, everyone helping each other. But soon, the membranes connecting the body of the family through daily life were ruptured. I lost my first name, Bobot, and later, even when I could hear the love and the voice of the person who had known me as a baby, I came to hate this name. Maybe in our language it was beautiful, but in English it sounded like an insult. I would correct people, reminding them that I was an American now and only used my American name. My first country disappeared as a place. I never heard it mentioned in the news, and not too many people in my small town had heard of it. They knew our neighbors, China and Taiwan, where toys and electronics were made. Their fathers and uncles who served in the military knew Subic and Clark military bases and could say, Mahal Kitab. We were not an affectionate family during those early years in the United States, so I did not know that those men were parenting, I love you, nor did I wonder who taught those men that phrase. This is what happens when assimilation brings erasure. I lost my first language, Tagalog. My parents wanted us to embrace English only. They believed Americans would discriminate against us if they heard an accent in our voice. My parents still spoke to each other in Tagalog if they wanted to talk about us without moving out of earshot. We learned to listen closely when we heard our names popping from their otherwise indecipherable sentences. My mother told me that her parents did the same thing to her, except in Spanish, a language they continued to speak with pride, a marker of their class status and education 
long after the colonizers had left. Inside a few cells in my brain, I believe there's a part of me that still knows Tagalog. I feel pain when I attempt to speak it, as though there is something I want to say desperately that can only be expressed in my first language. But I can't access words, or that part of me that named the world first in Tagalog. When I hear strangers speaking Filipino languages, I am as drawn to them as kin. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Grace. That last one was probably my favorite chapter in the whole book. Um, I want to talk about the way you open your book. It's unusual. You say, my story is not my story. So whose story is it? Thank you. So in the author's note, which was the very last thing I wrote before we sent the book out for production, I include what I want to say to my nieces and nephews, my family, about what it meant for me to write the story about giving everything away. So, of course, the experiences that happened to me are it's my right to write about those, but I understand that I'm connected to a lot of other people, and by me telling my story, I tell other people's stories at the same time. And I wanted to be really sensitive to that. I didn't want to demonize anybody. I wanted to understand them. That doesn't make what some people in my family did right, um, or you know, it doesn't justify it either. But it did happen, so I wanted to understand what that was about and how forces such as war and trauma and colonization and poverty and violence might have impacted um, my ancestors and that in turn played out on my body here in the United States as a child. And so I, I always wanted to be respectful um, to, I mean, whether they're related to me or not, I want to be respectful to the people I write about. And so in my author's note, I, that's what I was trying to do there, to send a signal that I'm thinking about um, the people in, in, who are in the book. And, and I don't take it cavalier in a cavalier way. Like I thought very deeply about why I would say something and why I wouldn't, and why I would wait until most people were dead, until I wrote, until I published the work. Um, I'm really interested also in the title, Body Papers, and the notion of the body as a central being. Um, can you tell us more about how the body
cells on my body, um, as well as in the body of work that I write about and make. So there were so many ways that body was resonant to me, and I, and I saw it after my friends saw it. So I think it's really important artistically and also in your life to be pretty thoughtful about who you surround yourself with, if that's possible. Um, I try to, I've been very lucky to have good friends who are also writers and to be able to populate my life with these people who think writing and books and making art are important to them. Um, I have other friends too, but um, their commitment to writing and making stuff when there's not really a huge return on investment in terms of the way that we, we typically measure um, return financially. Uh, you know, with some of my friends, like that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me either, actually. Like, I'm very interested in making stuff and writing stories down, and like the financial um, gain is actually not important to me at all. Um, but at the same time, I understand what a privilege it is to come from that place. But I've always worked many jobs that have nothing to do with um, my life as a writer or like getting paid as a writer. So I do other jobs to support this thing of like writing anything that I want to. I know I can make more money doing other kinds of writing. I have friends who make quite a good living as marketing writers, advertising writers, but I've decided that's not where I want to put my writing energy into. And I think it's the same kind of energy for me at least to to write, whether it's marketing or a book or a novel or essays. So I Sacrifice for your kids and 
to also do things that you should not be doing. Um, and those things need to be challenged, I think. So my immediate family understood. Um, my, some of my relatives did not. The, the people that I got emails from who complained about that essay have since passed away. Um, but when the book was coming out, I was nervous. I mean, I spent maybe six months or so like, between while the book was getting produced being pretty nervous and thinking, okay, who's going to abandon me? Who's going to hate me? Who's going to send me an email that's going to totally gut me and like make me sick for weeks? Because I care. Like, maybe I shouldn't care, but I do care about people's responses. Um, and so far, like I'm knocking on wood, um, I haven't had that kind of experience. My parents have been incredibly protective. And they told me before the book came out, they said, we will protect you. Like, if any of your relatives are coming after you, send them to us. And so, in some ways, it gave my parents um, the opportunity to make amends. Because also, there were things that my parents dropped the ball on when I was growing up. And I know they feel bad about it. And in some ways, publishing the book has given them an opportunity to make amends. And they've done things like fielded angry calls and emails from relatives um, and attended readings with me and like supported me and driven me to readings and had done all kinds of things to support me. So I found the book to be an opportunity in that way. I was also nervous about our community, the Filipinas American community, and whether they would be mad at me for writing a story that also wasn't happy. We don't have many representations in books and in literature and in culture. I get that. And so I felt nervous about putting something into culture, into our culture, that wasn't completely um, positive. And I had to think a lot about whether I would do that and whether I wanted to put that representation out about us. Um, I thought about it for a long time. I think that's why, you know, I graduated from grad school like 20 years ago, and I'm only coming out with my first book now um, because I, I, you know, I didn't want to think about that. But you know, so far the community has been incredibly supportive. I'm like touched by the notes and emails and like internet messages that I get pretty regularly, almost every day. And then I meet people face to face, and all the time I've been traveling the country since March, and um, it's a huge privilege and honor, and it's an incredible compliment to know that people have received my book in the way that I meant for them to receive it. And it's huge. I mean, I wasn't—I didn't know that was going to happen, and I just had to like take the leap. And if people didn't respond well to it, I just have to accept that. But I've been really fortunate. Uh, that people understood what I was trying to do. Including you. <laughs> you lived in the Philippines when you were doing your right? And I always feel so validated when I hear about other Philippines' experiences um, going back to the Philippines. Because everyone feels the same way, that, that we're like, it's a sense of belonging, but also you feel very fish out of water. Um, I noticed that for myself, the biggest culture shock is when I come back. And I was wondering if it's the same for you, leaving back. Yes, I mean, there's like, I, I'm guilty of complaining about some of the things, like the traffic, which I just wasn't used to, and the air quality. Like, I, I got sick 
during my six months in the Philippines of respiratory illness, and I actually never got better. Like, I just did, and I never could get ahead of it because of the air quality that at least where I was breathing um, had a lot of pollutants, so it was hard for me to get better. Um, and when I came back, I missed so many things. Despite the things I complained about, I missed so much. Like, I missed, like, the kind of sing, singing sort of lilts in, in my everyday conversation. I don't know how to describe it, but it was this, even when I would go to Starbucks or restaurants or bookstores, it was just this way, this, the, the sound of the language. And I think, you know, I was in the middle, so I was mostly hearing Filipino language, or Tagalog, whatever they're calling it now, I'm not totally sure. So I would hear that, and it was just so beautiful to be surrounded by my first language that I know is in, in my head in a groove somewhere, but I just can't really access it. Uh, I miss that. I miss, there's, I mean, I don't, there's just like this level of joy that I felt when I was there with people. Um, I don't really know what it's about. Maybe it's just the little bubble of the place that I lived in, in Bonifacio, a global city. But I felt like there was joy around me a lot. Um, and you despite conditions that we would consider difficult, even in, in a very wealthy, private area like EGC. Um, so, and also the physical beauty, like the, just the limestone cliffs, the greenery, the mangoes, I mean, there was so much that was, that was hard to get used to. And, and also, Filipinos being the dominant culture, I mean, like, that's a huge shift to make to come back here. Um, and for my husband, who's African-American, he, I read about this in the book, but, like, when he was in the Philippines, he didn't deal with racism in the same ways that he dealt with it here. He was an American in the Philippines, and that meant feeling some of the privileges of being white, almost. Um, and so for him, he missed that. And then he came back here and had to deal with the kind of microaggressions that you do with when you're African-American or black in our society. There's a lot of, um, I, hope, I hope I might go back to the Philippines this summer, sometime in the next few years. Um, but there's so many wonderful things. The food, I mean, there's so much. It's like beautiful about it. What stories from our community, Filipino-American community, do you think need to be told? I think we need a million more of our stories. They're, I mean, like falling in love, getting sick, like just every, all stories that you see that are, you know, other mostly, mostly white actors or writers, I mean, we're human too, like, it's like, we're just like, we have so many, any, any story that we would want to tell would add something to literature um, and movies and TV. You know, I mean, even just like the impact that the character on Superstore has made, who is, you know, is an ensemble, half hour comedy, it is one person, and yet if you look at his storyline, he's made quite an impact. He's talking about Duterte in one episode. He talks about being undocumented, what it means to be taken by ice, what it means to work in retail. I mean, there's just so many stories that one character is told. And I just think, what if we had like a film character like in all kinds of shows? I mean, there's, there's just like a richness um, that we could tell about American lives that is not there. I mean, we're here, we've been here. Um, there's so much about our culture, I think, that is funny and um, loving and uh, 
you know, so many characters, so many things that we can show and, and tell in through stories about specific stories for our writers and our community. So since this group is called the Colonized Bookshelves, um, I did I noticed that in your your book you kind of chart your the progression of your racial identity in the ways that you can express it. And one of the stories that you told, um, uh, and tell the story, it was when your college counselor put his arm up next to yours, and you talked about at that point you were in the fetal stage, so you didn't say anything. And I think all of us have been there. I was wondering if you could go into more on that. Yeah, so when I was a high school senior, I think that was the beginning of when I was starting to understand my, well, starting to form my racial identity. And it, it really cemented itself through high through college and then graduate school, where I was doing like more theoretical work, and plus having friendships and professors who were Asian American. Um, but in high school, I, in my whole growing up, I was very white identified. Like, I wanted to be white. I just, I mean, I didn't even understand like why I couldn't be white. Like, I thought by um, I could pray, you know, the next morning I could magically wake up and look like my white friends. Um, you know, I would have experiences of a difference that were quite painful. Like, I, I realized that no one wanted to like hold my hand during the dance. It was like this roller, roller skating party. And I was like, oh, nobody wants to skate with me because I'm Asian. Like, that's why no one's skating with me. So there were moments like that that were really painful. So of course, I wanted to be white. Um, and it took having friendships with other people of Hello. Okay, I think that's having friendships with other people of color, and um, and also having classes, Asian American literature, uh, Philippine history, U.S. history that that talked about the civil rights movement and the histories of people of color. All of those things were important in forming my racial identity uh, and developing it and understanding the connections that I have um, and you know, our communities have with other communities, like the solidarity that we should try to be developing with our communities, with, with you know, other Asian American communities, immigrant communities, people of color, and that there's a history of this solidarity. I don't think it's, it's not so visible, but it's like Asian Americans were there in the civil rights movement. We were there with the grapes, you know, the, the grape strikes and, and all of those things. And there's a way that we've been a little bit erased, and part I've been seeing people try to bring us back into that story, and I think it's important that we're part of that story because it's evidence that we've been we have solidarity and we've been like collaborating all along with each other, um, and that's an important thing to remember. Speaking about uh, your classes, can you talk more about uh, the class you teach right now? Sure. So um, for almost 20 years, I was teaching at Tufts University. And in one of the classes that I was lucky enough to teach was a class called Asian American Perspectives. And so it was a writing class, but all the writers um, that we read were Asian American. And it's really rare to have that experience, but it was the way that we centered our text, literature, movies. Sometimes we would watch like, clips of TV books, um, articles, essays. We, we, it was much more, like I didn't even scratch the surface. Like I, there was a whole semester just on Asian American text. 
and it could have been like years and years of it because that's how much there is, and that's how much there is that's worthwhile to study. Um, so mostly the students in that class would be Asian American, but there's always two or three folks who are not and needed to complete their college writing requirement, and that's why they were there. And sometimes they would be nervous because it was the first time they were a minority in the classroom, right? And so almost 100% of them would want to talk to me privately and say, and I'm thinking with one person in particular, and he wants to like get a coffee. He's like, you know, I want to talk about the class. I think I want to drop it. And I said, like, why? I don't understand. And he's white, and he's like, well, you know, I'm the only, there's only like two other white people in the class. I'm like, so what? Like, you could go, look at your other classes. Like, there might be one Asian American person or one person of color in that class. And like, how do they feel? Maybe you should just stay with it and try it and see what it feels like. Um, and he's been, he was nervous, and he's been terrific. Like, this was, this, I had him in class years ago, and I like, still keep in touch. I still see him every few months. And he says that it was an incredible learning experience for him to be with, with you know, a majority Asian American classroom and to be learning where Asian American voices were centered. And that's never, ever happened in his education before. So my last question for you before I pass it on to the audience is, uh, I heard that you're working on your first novel and it's going to be about Jewish refugees moving to the Philippines before World War II. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, that's what I'm researching right now. I'm very interested in this time period where, um, and I'm inspired by documentary films I saw. One is by Nosani um, Izan, uh, uh, um, who lives around here. Oh, he didn't make it, I don't think, but he was supposed to come. Um, and he's Izan, in Izan, I think his last name is Izan. He's like a high school man. And his, his film is not released as of yet, but I saw a version of it. Um, so, anyways, there are a couple documentary films and a couple of books about this time period in the 30s when um, Manuel Quezon, the president of the Philippines, had 10,000 visas to give European Jews who were fleeing. Um, unfortunately, only 1,300 of those visas were used. Um, but, you know, 1,300 Jewish refugees did go to the Philippines and live there. And soon after they got there, World War II broke out. And so, there's a lot of interesting and complicated stories that were happening there. Um, they tended to leave after World War II, Manila was pretty much destroyed. And so many of the refugees went on to the United States and Israel. Um, but my interest is in telling, finding and looking and telling some of the stories of the girls and women during that time period. I've read about the men, like how men were involved in quote unquote like saving these refugees. But I know that there's stories about girls and women, and that's what, in the very early stages, and that's what I'm investigating now. And I'd like to tell those stories in some way, whether it's non-fiction or fiction, I don't know yet, but I do know that it's a project I want to write and explore. I have other novels that are like halfway there, so, that I've written years past, but I don't know, this is the one that I will be working on now. Hopefully when it's published, you can come back here and talk about it. I would be honored. Uh, so right now we're going to open up the floor to any questions there are for the audience. If you have a question, raise your hand and then raise the call on you. Please also introduce yourself before you ask your question. And um, let's go ahead and get started.
until the mic comes to you so that uh, they can pick up your questions. Bruce, you mentioned uh, the wonderful um, abundance of uh, works by Asian American writers that have uh, come out this year and in previous years. Are there any particular books that you'd like to recommend? Oh, so many. Okay. If I just keep it to the last six months, I can even tell you a bunch of Filipino writers right there. Randy Revise, Patron Saint of Nothing, um, shortlisted for the National Book Award, which I hope he gets. Um, uh, Monica Garvey's I Was Their American Dream. It's a comic memoir, uh, cartoon memoir. It's fabulous. She's local. She's in Walt. She's in DC. I like Gina Tolentino's uh, Trick Mirror. That was fabulous on so many levels, and like, I'm still thinking about it. Um, the paperback of Jose Antonio Vargas's Dear America just came out. Um, Rico Ciasocos, The Foley Artist, which is a short story collection, that just came out two weeks ago. I mean, yeah, just even like in the past two months, I feel like there's so many. Um, that I definitely recommend. And, think. and then for, for reading outside of Filipinas authors, um, I've been reading um, Washington Black, um, which is a, a novel. Um, I think the name, the author's name is Esu um, Edukan. I'm probably getting the name wrong, but that was a beautiful book that I've been really enjoying as well. Um, this is also the time of year when the Best American series comes out, Best American Short Stories, Best American Essays. Um, so it's like, I love reading those when this time of the year comes out as well. Questions or comments or reactions to, or anything I said, things you want to share? Hello. Hi. <coughs> Chris. So um, I think which your work is monumental. I think it's, it's never been done before. I think we're a star. I think up with like, the government and everyone else that's been writing. So few, and you're one of those. You're one of those. Yeah. So I'm curious to know in your experience. Uh, you talk a lot about colonialization, whether it's indirectly or directly in your book. Um, and I guess it's a really general question, but what do you see as our role um, with in, in, as colonized people in history of colonialization? So um, what is our role in dealing with people who are the descendants of colonizers? How do we how do you how do you feel like you've been able to reconcile these feelings of guilt of living between two worlds with Richard or living in the Philippines, living in the US? Um, and, and just all of all of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you so much and thanks for the um, the compliment. I'm very touched by it and taking taking that in. Thank you. Um, I mean, that is a really big irony and, uh, and difficulty and conflict in my life, and I think in lots of our lives, right? Like, I pay my taxes, and I know my taxes go to things that I don't support, and that things that are horrible, actually, that things that do a lot of violence. So what do I do with that? Um, I, I try to be really thoughtful and careful about where I spend my time and money, and not to judge other people, but also to say, like, well, no, I'm not frequenting that 
establishment because of this and that reason, um, because of their policies towards LGBTQ community and stuff like that. Like I try to be aware of that. At the same time, I also know that there are so many ways that like any single thing I do is probably complicit in harming some community, right? Even just like having a cup of coffee, right? So it's very confusing and hard to know what to do, like how to live an ethical life. Um, although, you know, there are people, I have friends who are very much living that way. Like I have friends that I saw the other day, they've been vegan in, in response to factory farms for probably 30 years. They buy recycled clothing, like they, I mean, they just, they find ways, they buy ground, they find ways to live in an ethical way. So I know that that's, um, you know, that's possible. Um, but in terms of this idea about like, what to do with the colonizer or with colonial mentality, I know um, Dr. E.J. E. Um, David is like the best, right? Like he's been thinking about it and writing about it in so many ways, in personal ways, but also using his training as a, as a um, sociologist, I think he's a sociologist um, or a psychologist. So, you know, one thing is, is just I mean, I know we throw around this term like colonial mentality. Even in the Philippines, I would hear that as um, a common phrase. But I think like, but that's good. Like bringing it up and examining it and thinking about what does it mean and where do I fit in with that and what kind of choices can I make given my place in life, my my relative privilege. What can I do um, to resist and to say I don't like it or I don't want to participate in those kinds of things. Um, there are ways that we, that we can resist. I mean, I think even simple things like choosing what to wash. Like, my, my brother-in-law just decided, he's like, I'm not going to wash, I'm not going to stream or wash anything anymore that has, like, less than 50% people of color or something like that. He's just like, that's it, I'm just tired of it. Um, and I think those decisions actually have an impact. Like, the NAACP would do this boycott every year when, like, the season's network televisions lineup would come out and it would be like, wow, there's like no representation of African-American families or folks here at all. And so, I mean, I think like TV has changed, so I don't know whether they're doing it that way anymore, but there, there are ways that we can um, resist and, and challenge uh, colonialism. We're more powerful than we think individually and of course all our individual decisions collectively can do something. Hi there, um, my name is Sarah, I actually work 
I'm, I'm also Filipino. Um, I guess my question would be, when, when did you realize you wanted to be a writer? And this might be a long answer, but what was your process from realizing you wanted to be a writer and then making it happen? Did you not ever get the, oh, you should be a lawyer instead, you can make more money that way, the usual, you know, <laughs> or maybe you should go into medicine. Because I was writing in the Philippines before I moved here in 2003, 2004, but you know, you come here and you're an immigrant, so you kind of start from scratch. And I've never gone back to it, and I would, I would love to one day. Um, I guess this is the closest I'll ever get is working in the library in Baltimore. Um, yeah, so that was the one question. The other question was what made you decide to write about your very personal and very difficult experience with your family? Because, like, like Liza, did I get your name right? Yeah. Yeah, said that there's this, this very deep concept of yeah or shame. And it's not even just about writing about personal experience, but everything is not happening that. Like, don't do that, it's not happening that. You know, don't do this, it's not happening that. So um, that has been a very huge thing to have to get over, and I congratulate you for being able to do that. Thank you. Okay, let me take the yeah thing first. So, um, I think, I mean, I did grow up with, with that concept, and it's amazing to me, it's so ingrained in, in my training that that's my go-to emotion. Like, if I get behind in work or in emails or something, like, my emotion is, yeah, like, I feel like a bad person, I'm so ashamed of myself for not finishing my work or whatever it is. Um, but if it's something like this book, in writing about the truth of my life, um, yes, I was felt like I don't want to put shame on my family or Filipinos or whatever it is. But the opposite has happened by actually writing it down. I, I feel like I've been able to put the shame or the blame actually on the person it belongs to, which is my grandfather, frankly, in this particular case. Um, why should I hold? The shame for something that somebody enacted onto me when I was a child. I just really understood all of a sudden that it wasn't my fault. Um, I didn't ask for it. People are all too happy to say that I asked for it, by the way. You know, and I mean, recently I've heard this, relatives have said this about me that, well, you probably asked for it. It's like, I don't care if I asked for it. It doesn't matter if I asked for it. Even if I didn't. But so there's all these pressures actually to blame me, and it just actually makes me really mad. So I think, oh, I know what a seven year old looks like. I know what, I mean, I had, in my book, there's pictures of me as a child, and that was information for me. I had to contend and not dismiss and minimize my experience because I had to contend with what a seven year old, eight year old, nine year old looks like. And I was like, no, that was so wrong. That was bad. Um, so there's a way that I, have shifted that away from me, um, and so that hopefully I don't have to carry that shame anymore. It was something that happened to me, um, and now the thing to do is to try to um, make space. Like I can say that the Me Too movement, when other people were like sharing their their moments, big and small, of ways they they felt um, they were harassed or abused or in the whole spectrum of things. That helped me because I felt like I'm not alone, and the more that we speak 
the more we don't hold the shame, but we try to like shine a light on the problem, um, which is that people, mostly men, are doing this to mostly women, folks, and like we need to start talking about it more and not holding it. Um, and in terms of being a writer, my, when I was going through the, the many, many slides that my father took of our childhood, even when we first landed, when I was two years old, when I couldn't read or write, he has slides of me reading and writing. Like, I wanted a book in my hands. Um, you know, the magazine was like upside down, but this thing of like going through pages was an activity I like to do, and of writing, even though I couldn't form words yet, was something I like to do. Um, and I always liked to write, but I never expected that I could be a writer. Um, I didn't even really know what that meant. And so I studied medicine. And I went to college. I did pre-med. I was like, did everything you were supposed to do, internships, pre-med classes. And I was almost done. I just had one class left, which was um, organic chemistry two. That was the last thing. Everything else was completed. And that class broke me. Like, I studied so much. I had a tutor twice a week. I went to my office, professor's office hours once a week. I did everything that you were supposed to do, and I studied so many hours, and I was like barely pulling a C plus, B minus. And I thought, no, if I'm working this hard at something that I'm so bad at, like, this is, like, my energy could be better used doing something else. Like, I shouldn't do this. Um, and then another hint I got was, I was one of my, like, hospital rotations I was doing. Um, I was watching someone do an upper GI barium swallow, and I was watching like the barium go in this person's mouth and like through their throat, and then I fainted. And I was like, okay, if I can't just watch someone swallow a drink, like, I mean, I can do that this business. Um, so I, I told my parents, I was a senior in college by then, and I asked them to come to the campus where I was living, and drive like an hour away through traffic. And I said, will you please come to campus? I have something very important to tell you. I'm sure they thought I was going to tell them like I was pregnant or something. And so they get there to campus, they're like really serious, they're like, what's the matter? What do you want to tell us? And I said, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. And they were so relieved. They're like, what? That's all you wanted to tell us? You're going to drive through Boston traffic and rush out to like hear you say that? Like, fine, it's your life. Like, do whatever you want. And so they, they said that, and that's true. Like, do whatever you want. But there is a part of them that, of course, wanted me to have a stable financial, like, you know. And so there was one time I was between jobs at this point, and my father hired me to be a secretary at his medical clinic. And there was one point where I was doing and I was living with that. So it's like I was just using the money for, like, spending money, and then I was just living, totally living off my parents. I was fully an adult at this time. I probably was like in my mid twenties, um, and then my father turned to me. He's like, "You need to figure something out. Like, you need to get a job or something." Um, and then so you know, eventually I made it work. But I just cobbled, I cobbled like a lot of things together to make it work. And you know, my father is like baffled, I think, by it. Like I don't have to ask him for any money, so it's fine. So I think he thinks like, "Okay, I'm doing well." Um, but he's, he, I mean, I, I have compassion. Like he doesn't. Get it. It's like being a writer or an artist is not a career path. Um, like being a doctor, like he's a doctor, and you know, that's a career path. There's like these benchmarks and things that you do. But I've also come to realize that writing is a practice. 
It's something you do, like dancing or walking or doing yoga. It's like a thing you do, and whether I have a book or not, I, I mean, I came to this realization like 10 years ago before I had a book, because I felt so bad that I didn't have a book. And I was like, you know what? Being an author actually isn't the marker of being a writer. Being someone who writes, that's a writer. And that's what I'm doing. And so even though I don't have a book published, I'm still a writer. Because having a book published often requires having other people involved. It is out of your hands. Unless you self-publish, which is also great. Um, but for me to publish, I needed someone else to do it. Um, in my case, I got really lucky because I came across the um, description for the rest of this book's prize for new immigrant writers, and it described me completely. And it was my break like, that, I, that I won the, the prize, because otherwise I was finding it very difficult to break in to book publishing. Um, and I was feeling really discouraged. But I also knew that like I'm still going to write. Like I need my money doing other things, and I'm writing for me, and I'm writing for my students, and my nieces and nephews and my nibbling, like, that's who I'm writing for. Um, so I'm going to keep doing that no matter what happens in terms of publishing. But if you enjoy it, think of it as like any activity that you like to do, like walking or dancing or like going to the movies. Like allow yourself to five minutes or ten minutes to do that thing that you enjoy. And just, just to do it and then see what happens. There's many steps, many ways we can share our work without ever having a book or you can make your own book. I mean, there's, or you can you know, try the publishing booth, big press, small press, any of those things. Uh, but I think if you enjoy doing it, like, let yourself have the gift of doing it. Thank you. Hey, um, my name is Irene. Um, earlier you mentioned that you have um, a brother, and we were just talking. And uh, I was have a younger brother, we were one year apart. Um, but I find that in my family that relative to my brother, I'm a lot more invested in exploring my family's heritage and our roots. Um, do you find that similar dynamic between you and your brother? Um, you're clearly really committed to exploring your background and what Filipino identity means to you. Uh, is that the same for your, uh, is that true for your other siblings? Yeah, I mean, it's, in some ways it's gendered in my family. I have two brothers and two sisters, and my two younger brothers are scientists, they work in the medical field. They're somewhat interested, but even though they have kids, and you would think like they would want these stories to pass on to their kids, they don't seem that interested actually. I mean, they're happy about my book, maybe they'll just give my book to their kids and pass on family stories that way. Um, but they don't seem particularly interested. My older sister, Mary, is an ethnomusicologist, and I think she came to ethnomusicology through the story of our great-grandfather who was a musician at the St. Louis World's Fair, right? And so there's a way that family lore and family stories inspired her to do her life's work, which is to be a professor and study, like, what does music and culture mean with race and colonialization and stuff like that. Um, and my younger sister, she does um, diversity and inclusion training work. And so her whole world is about, like, racial identity development, changing people's practices and ideas around inclusion and diversity. And I think also that comes from our, you know, our family and our experiences um, as immigrants. Even though she's an American US citizen from her, um, she got interested in like 
these in-between spaces that our family had to negotiate. Um, she was with me, like, when we went to church, my two sisters were next to me when, like, the family in front of us would consistently turn around and, like, do racial gesture, racist gestures at us, like, every time they sat in front of us. It was horrible. And we didn't know what to do or say, and I think there's some way that, like, those early experiences, maybe some of our work is a way of, like, talking back to those people from early on in our lives that treated us so poorly. And we weren't, we weren't equipped to respond then, and, like, our lives now, in some ways, are in response to those kinds of moments that we didn't like how we reacted or didn't have another way to react at the time. Thank you. I hope you do continue to, to um, explore your family history because someone in the family needs to be the keeper of the stories, right? And like keep telling them and, and passing them along. Thank you, Grace. So it looks like we're going to wrap up. So thank you so much. Thank you, Eliza. Thank you, Tracy, and Pat Library. This was really incredible. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.